Would you pray together with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, in this place, a holy place, a place set apart, apart in our hearts, uh, Lord, to worship you, and, and for this moment, a holy moment, Lord, one that leads us into your presence, and Lord, one in which we declare ourselves to be yours. We give ourselves to you in obedience to your claim in our lives. The bread and the cup are to before us now, Lord, and, and, and with an invitation to be able to see, see our lives as you see us, and Lord, to remember that you are the Lord of our lives. And as we come into this place, we confess that oftentimes our, our vision is focused on, on, on the world as it is and the challenges as they are, and the burdens, Lord, of life sometimes press so heavily upon us that that is all we can see. And yet, Lord, as we open your word, we, we ask that you, by your presence, would lift us into the heavens and to be able to see the most important things of all, our relationship with you and, Lord, the decisions that, 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 that are made in our heart that we willingly make, that, Lord, open up heaven and eternity and a perspective, Lord, that puts all other things in their place. So, Lord, teach us, I pray, and use me, and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing unto you. This we pray in the powerful and the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, and in his name we pray, amen. Over my years as a pastor, I have learned to look for something in life, in every life, really, which I for lack of any better term, call a window of opportunity. And and, and the window of opportunity, those moments which qualify as a window of opportunity, are times in which sometimes a very critical or intense life event puts a person onto high alert. And and, and being at high alert, it it also is a moment in which the Holy Spirit begins to stir and it's as if all, all, of, all things come together in a collision where suddenly a person awakens to serious reflections on life and responsibility, on destiny and purpose, and ultimately upon their standing with God. A window of opportunity. That moment where human hearts are held in balance on the edge, on the brink of a heavenly decision. Some moments arrive, uh, for example, when you reach your late teens and you realize that life is finally upon you and that you have to make a decision about what you believe and who you will be and how you will live your life. And you realize that you can no longer just cruise along in the draft of somebody else's influence, that you are in a position where you have to make up your mind. And those of you who are young people, you are, are standing in, uh, at, uh, before a window of opportunity at such a moment. There are other moments I've discovered, uh, for example, when you decide to marry, or better yet, when you welcome children, and I tell you, those of you who are sitting three months pregnant are going to find this moment to occur. Suddenly you're gobsmacked with the uh, reality of responsibility that you must care for someone other than yourself. And that burden of, uh, of, of responsible care demands a level of maturity and integrity that you've never imagined of yourself. I I have seen young parents uh, 
who, who could have cared less about spiritual things until suddenly they find themselves holding a newborn in their arms. <laughs> and their first prayer usually goes something like this. Oh, God, help me. <laughs> as honest as it can get. They're embracing a window of opportunity. There are so many others, but to be honest, the most powerful all of all arrives in moments really of, of tremendous crisis and usually heart-rending tragedy. Those windows open whenever life crumples under the sheer weight of reality. It may be the loss of a job or the loss of a relationship. It might be through the diagnosis of a deadly disease or maybe the announcement of a disaster that has has destroyed your life. And whatever it is, it is a, a crisis you are brought to where your life hangs in the balance. And as you lift your eyes, you see a window appearing. Now, as we turn to Luke chapter 13 this morning, we arrive at such a moment. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, just the first nine verses. From the previous passages that we have been walking through in in, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus has already established a a theme for teaching, and and the theme was decision. In chapter 12, uh, Jesus had put his disciples on notice that it was time to decide In verse 35 of chapter 12, Be dressed and ready for service with your lamps burning bright. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Make up your mind now because tomorrow is too late. And in verse 54 of chapter 12, Jesus went beyond the disciples and He put the public at large on notice. He says, you you know how to tell the time. You know how to deal with decisions. In verse 58, try hard to be reconciled now before the judgment comes. The, the, The issue of decision is on the table. And so when we turn to chapter 13, we find that, in fact, some took advantage of this moment, this opportunity, in order to open their hearts to Christ. Look at verse 1. It says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now I want to stop there for just a moment. Jesus goes on, but in his answer to explain the situation. But for just a moment, I want you to consider the scene. The, the scene that, that is behind this, the, the shedding of the Galilean blood, is a, is a brutal, a very painful, and I would imagine, if you understand the history of this, for many of Christ's followers who have come from Galilee, I would imagine it was maybe personal as well. You see, some people may be drawn to Jesus in this crowd that was around him. They may have been drawn to Jesus out of spiritual curiosity, or maybe some sort of gentle attraction. But here, for some, tragedy has driven them to Jesus and now has given them a voice. Because somehow life has run up on the rocks of reality and they're seeking to make sense of it. So Jesus, Jesus, what about this outrageous murder that has taken place? And in his answer, Jesus expands on the news of the day beyond just that murder. The issues that have opened up this window of opportunity in their heart. Listen to what he says. 
Well, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered. Now, notice it's Jesus answered. That means they didn't just bring this up. They had questions about what they brought up that required an answer. So Jesus answered. He said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered that way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he goes on to expand the news of the day. He said, or those 18 who died in the, when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish. It's as if he's reading off of a news bulletin and adding to the, to the, to the points of history that the moment has brought. And it's a little bit difficult to track down that history because Luke is really the only one who records it. But going back in time, one New Testament historian, William Barclay, has pointed to a very well-documented plan that, in fact, Pilate, the Roman governor of Israel, had in order to improve Jerusalem's water supply by building an aqueduct system using temple funds. Follow with me on the history on this. The idea of dipping into God's treasury for a Roman city project simply infuriated the Jews. And mobs had gathered together at the temple to protest what they saw as, a, as, a, as an imposition, an injustice from the Roman Empire. Barclay writes that during the protest, Pilate sent soldiers into the crowd disguised as plainclothes cops. <laughs> And and as the record reads, it says, at a given signal, they were to fall upon the mob and disperse them, but it was done with a violence far beyond the instructions, and a considerable number of people lost their lives. Almost certainly, Galileans, who had a rebel's reputation to begin with, would have been involved with the protest, and if this was the event... Uh, A grim detail stands. Their blood was mingled with the sacrifices because it took place in the temple area. The second incident, the tower that fell, may also be related to Pontius Pilate. There's an interesting turn of words that is used here in verse 4. The word guilty can be also interpreted in the Greek as the word culprit, someone who has willingly participated in a crime. And here, Barclay discovers another clue for this moment. These people, the 18 who were killed, I think it's 18, isn't that right, the number? Okay. Um, That were killed may have been workers who had actually taken part in the work of that hated Roman aqueduct. Many Jewish artisans did, but since the money had been taken from the temple, almost automatically returned their pay to the temple so that they would have nothing to do with the Roman theft. And in the course of construction, however, there was an accident, and 18 died. Some may have been the few that had paid their taxes and may have been viewed as culprits by working on the project, but the fact is they died. And when people die, other people have to make sense of the tragedy. I think in summing it all up, I can just be able to say, you know already what is at heart in the matter here. Bad things happen, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. And you want to have an answer as to why. Why? Now, I don't know why this particular tragedy was brought to Jesus, but I do know what it is for people to do when they're when they tempted when bad things happen. 
For some, if, if bad things happen to other people, they end up breathing a sigh of relief. I, I'm glad I didn't do anything to deserve to die. And, and in the Jewish mind, nothing happened by chance. Roman soldiers didn't murder some and spare others, nor did towers fall upon some people and not on others for no reason. God dealt out judgment according to what people deserved, and maybe there was just a hint of excuse in the face of decision with the same hoping that maybe I don't have to deal with things seriously because, because God hasn't dealt with me in the same way. He's dealt with others in the same way. I must be okay. Whew, I'm glad I dodged that bullet. Or maybe there are some, and maybe there are some you know, who when, when they see tragedy happening, not just in themselves, but maybe in the lives of other people, they in fact decide to go ahead and blame God for it. As if because something awful has happened to others, God has somehow lost his moral standing to deal with us and to be the judge of the universe. It's a, it's a convenient excuse to be able to say, I, I, I blame it on God and, and I can now walk away a free man or a free woman. As if God has somehow proven himself to be either absent or unfair, but whatever the result, I'm off the hook. Are you familiar with such a reaction? I imagine you would be. And when I read this passage, and I, and I got an idea of what was the issue at stake here, I'll confess to you that I was eager to hear Jesus open up a book of teaching and provide the ultimate answer and a solution for the problem of evil in this world, a definitive explanation for pain and injustice that I could be able to carry with me that would make sense of it all. But instead, I found something completely different. He doesn't issue an explanation. He does not issue a theology. He does not issue an apology. Instead, he turns the question around and he makes it a personal application. Look at verse 3. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Repeat it again in verse 5. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. No explanation for injustice or no explanation for unfairness. No explanation for, for evil but a personal application. And by making it personal, he allows that moment to become a window of opportunity. Not only for these who come to him, but for you and me as well. I like the way one commentator explained it. He said, the reason such events are so tragic is because they expose the fragility of our mortality. Isn't that that death does exist in a fallen world, and nothing exposes our mortality more than when death comes suddenly and unexpectedly, and I would add to that unfairly as well, at least to us, cutting short life. And Jesus argues that what we should be contemplating is not the cutting short of the lives of others, but the fact that life at large is terminal, ours included. And in the face of that fact, what preparations we make now matter most for that time when it comes. Do you catch what he is saying? Because here, Jesus is the ultimate realist. 
None of us are immune from tragedy. None of us are immune from injustice. None of us are immune from pain or or the effects of evil. None of us. This is not a perfect world, and, and the statistics for every human being are indisputable. One out of one die. The big question, however, we must face is, are we prepared for that moment and what lies beyond? Are you prepared for your moment and what lies beyond? And even more, what, while Jesus is the ultimate realist here in waking us to the, to the, to the urgency of a decision today and not tomorrow, but today... He is also the ultimate Savior in that he makes it perfectly clear what those preparations are that need to be made. Repent, he says. Those are the preparations. Repent, he says. He says it twice. These are the preparations. Repent and repent and do it now before it's too late. Which is then the point, really, of this little short parable that appears in verses 6 through 9. Let me read it as I have it in my New American Standard Version. A certain man had a fig tree, which had been planted in a vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and didn't find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. why, Why does it even use up the ground? And 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 the servant answered and said to him, Leave it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put, put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then let it be cut down. I appreciate the fact that this story has to do with organic living life, a fig tree. Because, you see, repentance is not just a matter of of, of, of emotion or intellectual awakening or something mechanical. It is something that has to come from the heart and from the living being and the heart from within. It, and and it, it, it brings about an orientation to life and new life. Because you see, in repentance, to repent is not just a matter of regret, but it is in fact something of a substantial change that can be cultivated by decision and action and care that can be measured as well. That's why Jesus, why John the Baptist spoke of those who were serious about repentance as bringing forth fruits with their repentance. Those who repent become fruitful and there is a measurement of a new life within. And in reflecting on this parable, what we see here really is in fact the grace of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he stands there as the servant who who holds back the judgment, who holds back the days from your moment of accountability. He holds those back. For a year, he says, give it a year. And he is the servant who gives time for us to turn things around. And he patiently cultivates our roots. And he is the one that applies the manure, if you want to call it, the fertilizer. And he, and he, and he does such things as to allow us that, that opportunity. And he sprinkles us with the richness of his word and he watches and he waits for us to respond and then to bloom and to bear fruit. But... 
He cannot wait forever. We read that here, that a year is going to come, and a judgment will be there. And the cutting will take place. We read in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 27, there is a limit to the time that every single one of us have on earth. And, and, and a limit for us uh, to that time for us to open our hearts to God. There we read that it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. In the eyes of God, without true repentance, none of us have any hope for eternal life. And I love the way C.S. Lewis then describes the dynamics of repentance. Fallen man, he says, is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And this process of surrender, this moment of full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. And now repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than simply eating humble pie. It means unlearning all of the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of ourselves and undergoing some part of death in order to come to life. A full surrender in order to become fully surrendered. And sometimes it takes a crisis for a person to come to that awakening. A severe crisis in order to break the will, uh, in order to receive God's grace. I recently read a story of a woman who said that as a girl she was poor. She goes, I, I grew up in a, in a cold water flat, but I married a man who had money. And he took me to a place where I had flowers, I had gardens, I had grass, and it was wonderful. And then we had children. And, but then suddenly, I became physically sick. I went to the hospital, and doctors ran all sorts of tests. One night, the doctor came into my room, and with a long look on his face, he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, your liver has stopped working. I said, doctor, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that I am dying? And he said, I can't tell you anything more than that. Your liver has simply stopped working. We've done everything we can to start it. And then he walked out. Great bedside manner, eh? She writes, she goes, I knew I was dying. I was so weak. I had to feel my way along the corridor down the chapel of the hospital because I wanted to tell God off. I wanted to tell God, you are a shyster. You've been passing yourself as a loving God for 2,000 years, but every time anyone who begins to even get happy, you pull the rug out from under them, and now you're pulling the rug out from under me as well. I wanted this to be a face-to-face telling off of God. Imagine for a moment, just a second, as I step away from that story, her standing together with this group who is before Jesus in in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. She's there demanding an explanation. She writes, as I I got to the center of the chapel, I, I tripped. And I I must have swooned because I fainted. And when I looked up, I found stenciled along the step into the sanctuary where the altar was. I saw these words. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I lingered on those words, feeling the, the heat of my anger suddenly begin to dissolve. I knew God had spoken to me that night. I know he did. She didn't say how God communicated this to her, but what, what, what God said was, you know what this is all about. It's about a moment of surrender. 
It's about bringing you to that moment when you will surrender everything to me. These doctors, they do the best they can, but they can only treat. I am the only one with a cure for you. And as she, she, she recounts, she goes, there with my head down and my arms folded in the center of the chapel, I just began to repeat those words that I had seen. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Would you say that together with me? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And there she says, I surrendered to God. And I found my way back to my hospital bed, weak as I was. The next morning, she says, after the doctor ran the blood tests and the urinalysis and so forth, he said, ah, your liver has started working again. We don't know why. We don't know why it stopped, and now we don't know why it started up again. And I said in my heart, oh, but I know, but I know. God has brought me to the brink of disaster just to get me to turn my life over to him. What does God have to do with you? Is it tragedy in the world? Is it calamity in your life? What does God have to do to awaken you? Does it really have to lead you to the brink of disaster? Or could it be a moment like this, this morning, where a window is opened and you are given that freedom to respond? I can't think of any better words for a response for a response as we take the bread and the cup than those found in what is known as the Jesus prayer, and the passages are there for you to see. It is repeated again and again and again and again throughout the New Testament and into our lives. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. As I come to the close of this service, I would invite you as we then prepare our hearts and as we will take the communion to take the moment now to prepare your heart for eternity. And with a simple prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world, Lord of my life. I come to you even now, Lord, with thanksgiving, for you are here even now. And Lord, I cast myself to you in abandonment and in surrender. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I do so with thanksgiving for Lord, even in that confession of repentance, Lord, there is that assurance of forgiveness. Sealed, Lord, in the breaking of the bread and in the spilling of the cup. So, Lord, with a broken heart and with a thankful spirit, Lord, together I come. Each one of us do. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on all of us, sinners but now your children, by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.